Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And as usual, we're here till 6 o'clock tonight. On the program today, we remember a value contributor to Tuesday Home Time and before that, Par Avion. Historian and author Brian McKinlay was very well this morning. Brian's first contribution was in 2004 and was an irregular on the program until five years ago when he began a monthly half-hour history segment which expanded to once a fortnight a year or so ago. His knowledge of history and politics was phenomenal and he taught me so much over those years. Just to settle and select a tribute was difficult, but I settled on Egypt, a segment in February 2011 as the so-called Arab Spring spread across the Middle East, and the second, a history of French imperialism, broadcast in March 2015. Also on the program today, Beverly Bell from the global justice organisation Other Worlds will be talking about Honduras and Haiti, but first... His story, Mr Kevin Healy, his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when after years as a good, good union boss, union boss, not a pejorative in his case, and isn't it heartening to know in a world suffering the anti-social disruption of evil, evil union bosses, there is the odd, good, socially responsible union boss, years as good union boss who never suffered the distraction of ever actually working in the industry, and then years fighting for, sacrificing himself for the lazy, avaricious workers of this country by putting his bum on the plush seats. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition made an amazing discovery in equality. Not suggesting he's a slow learner, but little Billy reckons there may well be a bit of inequality in True Blue Aussie. Thank goodness for little Billy. Without him, how would we have known? For a start, he explained, a glaring, glaring inequality is... I am not equal with big supremo Malcolm, but between now and the next election, inequality offers the promise of making me more than equal if you follow. What followed was a defence of inequality by its practitioners and their puppets, or sorry, no, their parliamentarians, who understand that without inequality we could not enjoy the benefits of the trickle-down effect, those much-appreciated drops of yellow liquid, the benefits of the greatest little economic order of them all, which our stroke is good for all of us. See, little Billy was exploiting the politics of envy, ignoring the obvious economic truth that without the filthy, filthy, rich, the unclean, unclean poor would be even more penurious. The poor should thank the filthy rich every day for making their lives that little bit better. Big economic guru scuttled them more lash son spoke for the exponents of the greatest little. He is proposing an envy tax. Dear me, not an envy tax. And scuttled them called on little Billy to release the costs 
of this outrageous policy, the costs of asking people to pay at least 75% of the tax they should pay, showing Scuttlebeam's deep concern for the interests of the public purse, we just can't afford to tax the filthy rich. While the Business Profits Council's Jennifer Waste and Not Cut Wages stated the obvious. The only way to help the poor, the only way to increase wages is to make the filthy, filthy rich, filthy, filthy richer and not place restrictions on their important role like, well, like expecting them to pay taxes, for instance, which is sort of with only slight embellishment what she did say. And the Minister for Financing the Private Sector, Matthias Rotten-Tuther, said the Socialists were intent on envy and class war, and it was envy and class war to ask business and the filthy, filthy rich to pay the tax they were avoiding, uh, sorry, uh, minimising, presumably because of those costs Scuttlebeam is so concerned about. And the small business prophet supremo, Peter Strongbox, said the Socialists were planning both asking small business to pay tax and increase Sunday penalty rates which small business simply couldn't afford. They'd go broke. Paying taxes and paying workers. The increase in penalty rates, of course, being restoring the penalty rates to where they were before the recent cuts, when they didn't go broke, but then add having to pay tax as well, and yeah, yeah, good point, Peter. And the Minister for Financial Services to the Greatest Little Economic Order, Kelly Oda, why are evil unions so evil, said tightening tax-dodging laws, or, sorry, tax minimisation regulations on family and other, and other trusts, was an attack on philanthropy, charity and disabled people. Little Billy Shorten Ambition, what have you got against philanthropy, charity and disabled people? She was all compassion. Trusts are used for good, good, good purposes, not for tax evasion. And she's a junior economic type minister, so she wouldn't be wrong. Just a bit unfortunate, the same article quoted a Sydney professor of tax law estimating trust manipulation costs the public purse at least $2 billion a year it should receive. But he must be wrong. We'll back Kelly every time. Trusts are not a tax evasion tool. Well, they can't be. Half the front bench in Canberra uses them. And does anyone believe they'd be avoiding tax? Why, I know one minister's four-year-old and seven-year-old dear little children paid a whole $2.55 each, each, in tax just last year. The same amount as both their parents. And little Billy addressed poor Kelly's concerns by excluding charity and disabled people and farmers, meaning the filthy, filthy rich will suddenly become ardent philanthropists and ardent supporters of people with disability and dedicated primary non-producers. A little Billy, we asked, if your campaign to use the poor, this inequality you've discovered succeeds and you become more equal than Malcolm, big supremo, what will you do about inequality? I don't follow, because obviously after I've eradicated the inequality, which makes me unequal, there, there won't be any inequality. Oh yes, there's no doubt he's the hope of the side. Now, as little Billy addresses inequality, as we commented last week, hope no one has the silly misplaced idea that this burgeoning campaign over super funds by the aforementioned Kelly Odawire evil union so evil has anything to do with evil unions being so evil, with addressing the inequality which prevents the big four banks and the great financial institutions of this world getting their hands on all that lovely, lovely money. 
why she said there's no connection. But her concern may well be that the badly managed funds, those with evil, evil union appointments on their boards, are, as we know, outperforming the efficiently managed funds, those run by the esteemed banks and big, big financial institutions boards. Wonder if it's anything, anything to do with the latter having a profit motive for themselves rather than the workers. Probably not. But Kelly knows it's important to get all that money into the hands of the efficiently underperforming to avoid people asking questions about the underperforming. What would happen if people lost faith in the bank, she asked. Good point. They might even call for a royal commission. Hang on, there's some sort of commotion down in Malcolm's office. A big supremo, big supremo. There's another senator caught up in this dual citizenship business. Great, great. The way it's going, the Greens will have no one left. Serves them right. Talk about careless. There's no excuse. Ignorance is no, no defence. They have to resign. Great, great. Ah, uh, no, big supremo. It's one of ours. One of your hayseed and sheepshit party ministers. Matt Canavan of Clean Coal. Oh, Oh, obviously an innocent mistake. We must challenge this in the High Court. Ignorance is an obvious defence. As it turned out, Matt fell back on the Shane Warne defence. Me mum made me do it. It's all her fault. And he might have a case, because Matt said he had no idea. And we've known for ages he has no idea. But what a tragedy if the publicly funded private Adani the environment lifting India's poor out of poverty coal mine and clean coal itself lost one of their most forceful proponents. Perhaps his mum's a closet socialist. Even if those who know about these, these things say it would have been impossible for him not to know. And, well, maybe it was explained to him, but the matter was so complicated he still didn't know, just couldn't understand. That's very possible. Speaking of mothers, following yet another, uh, sorry, a police murder, a uh, sorry, killing in Sydney Wednesday, the big brass said there would be an independent inquiry. We've appointed the, you know, like, officers' mothers to conduct the, like, you know, inquiry, and our information is, you know, like, they've always known how to teach them a, like, you know, lesson which certainly sounds much more independent than the police inquiries we're used to, and after all, the victim was brandishing a pair of scissors. So what choice would the coppers have other than using a bit of common sense? But then we are talking about, yeah, yeah. But thank goodness for their vigilance. Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, P1, screaming yesterday, Sky High Evil! Then, father-son teams planned a bomb, etc. So I read on to find what charges had been laid, given the Wapping Sin had found them guilty of, uh, guilty of, 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 of no idea. No charges had been laid. Oh, well, when there's no doubt saves time, well, saves wasting time and expense on a trial and having to produce something as unnecessary as proof. Finally, sadly, on a serious note, the death of historian Brian McKinley, a regular commentator on this program, a man with a wonderful way with words of irony and cynicism. First met Brian when he played a key role back in the early 70s as we formed the Socialist Left faction in the ALP after federal intervention sacked the Victorian branch, whose secretary was another former 3CR presenter, the late Bill Hartley, a period younger listeners might find it hard to believe when the Socialist Left faction was, wait for it, socialist left. 
and Brian proved himself both an invaluable contributor to debate, to policy development, to active support, and as a delightful bloke with a wonderful balance of intellect and wit. He wrote regularly, mostly on relevant historical matters for the Factions newspaper, which I edited, and later, apart from regular contributions to this program, he was a regular on Par Avion, Bill Hartley's long-running Saturday morning program, where his vast knowledge of world history, of the social history of any country we could name, provided us with so much information and enjoyment, thanks to that balance of delivering information through such entertaining language, and my favourites were his comments on the US, on its political, economic and military elite and their policies, which he hated with a passion. His wit, his sarcasm seemed to hit their heights, such that I always look forward to his contributions with anticipation. Those who have listened to those contributions will be aware of his erudition, but also aware of his humanity and concern for real social justice and equality. It was a privilege to work with him, a pleasure to listen to him, and to state the obvious... We will miss him. Bali, comrade. Good afternoon. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy. Missed his week. You can hear him again tomorrow at 9 o'clock on City Limits. Now the first of two interviews, two interviews out of the archives featuring Brian McKinlay. On the line is political commentator Brian McKinlay. Brian, Egypt, the protesters are now entering into their second week all over the country. Yes, and it looks hopeful. I mean, I guess like most of your listeners, I followed the events with great attention. This is, um, interestingly, it wasn't reported in the press here, but in the United States, Jimmy Carter, who should know a bit about these matters, Jimmy Carter said this is the most fundamental moment in the Middle East since the fall of the Shah. And it bears some resemblance to that, Jan, doesn't it? I mean, the Shah was a, a devoted ally of the United States and Israel. He was corrupt. He was hated. All of it, you could say, is like a template, really, of what's happening in Egypt. Another thing I read in a report yesterday, and this puts much of it into context, of the 80 million-odd Egyptians, about 77 million live on less than a dollar a day per head. Now, if you've got a family of four or five children, it means you've got about $7 a day to spend on whatever. An Egyptian, an old friend of mine, who an Egyptian-Australian said the other day, he said, look, the price of bread has escalated with the world shortage of cereals, and that is the key factor in a way. People are driven mad by the prospect of starvation, and that bread with dips, the sort of thing you and I might have with a drink, they're the basic food of people along with chickpeas which are made into a soup with whatever scraps of veggies or meats you can afford. That's the basic diet for many Egyptians day after day. But prices have escalated in the last 12 months, as you know, in Australia. That has affected bread, which is a staple food, but also um, the other foods like sugar and tea and so on, uh, all have caused this dreadful problem for so many people. And of course against that, Mubarak has been privatising Professor Cole and your listeners might like to follow him up. He's a brilliant American academic who speaks Arabic and Persian. Professor Cole has a website called Informed Comment and I couldn't recommend it too highly. The other day he looked at the way in which Mubarak has been, like all the neoliberals, privatising everything, and the wealth has enriched the tiny minority in Egypt 
of some million or more who are obscenely rich. This wasn't the case under people like Nasser and Sadat, where there was a real attempt to spread the wealth around and to have the state to do all sorts of things like provide medical care and the rest. Now, that's all gone. I mean, Mubarak is closer to George Bush or John Howard in his economic thinking, and we know where that leads to. But it's been privatised and the big foreign corporations have been brought in and they've greedily feasted on all of these things. But for most Egyptians, their living standards have plummeted. And that's really one of the reasons behind all, all the uh, events that are occurring. People are desperate. Brian, can you talk to the role of the, the West in keeping him in power all those years? Well, of course, uh, America gives him between 2 and $3 billion a year, and that doesn't go, by the way, to social welfare. They're not helping Egyptians. That goes to the military and the army and the police. These people are well paid by Egyptian standards, so the police are prepared to do the most vile things, to kill people in the streets to keep their well-paid jobs, well-paid by Egyptian standards. The Americans, of course, pushed Egypt's... Um, pushed, they didn't have to push much, pushed Mubarak into a series of agreements, the Camp David Accord, which did Israel an enormous favour. Now, we know that all American policy in the Middle East is driven by one thing, and that is the concern of Israel. And this comes from the great power of the Israeli Zionist lobby in America, which has people at the very top in both political parties, so that no matter what policies, who's in power, whether it's um, the Republicans like Mad Bush or whether it's the Democrats with the current president, Gasbag, the Zionist lobby rules in this sense. Now, what happened with Mubarak? He was given this money to prop his regime up, in turn for making it comfortable for Israel on its southern borders. And Israel's defence expenditure over the last 15 or 20 years has fallen from 23% to 9%. Now that's gone in Israel into other things, into what seems like an economic miracle for Israel at home, but in fact it's because uh, Mubarak has kept the pressure off their southern borders and he's kept the pressure on those poor desperate people in Gaza. Now, the other night on Al Jazeera, which is, as you know, been banned by the Egyptian government yesterday, had an interesting program from Gaza where they interviewed three young Palestinian men who had been jailed by Mubarak for helping smuggle stuff into Gaza. And they were in a prison the other night in Cairo where the, a group of armed men burst into the prison and released them and others, including all of the executive, really, of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, who were imprisoned there. And these three young Palestinians, with the help of friends, got to the border and back into Gaza safely. And they told a terrible story of the imprisonment and maltreatment of Palestinians and, of course, the partial starvation of Gaza by the Egyptian government's refusal to allow in all sorts of supplies. Now, that, of course, is just at the behest of the Israelis, these dreadful people like, uh, like Netanyahu and his thuggish foreign minister, Lieberman. Um, they exert great pressure and get it. Is it known what's happening at the Rafa crossing at the moment? The crossing's still there, but apparently it's been, in the last few days, pretty easy to move backwards and forwards. The people in Gaza were, of course, jubilant at the fall of Mubarak, the hopeful fall. Interestingly, 
in the middle of all this, Mubarak's gone through this cosmetic change with a new cabinet and so on, which nobody believes is any importance. But a man called Suleiman has become vice president. Now, what the manoeuvre is, you could think up several reasons. Suleiman's a military man, head of intelligence and an expert in torture. That's his special field. But in an article in Counterpunch a few days ago, a brilliant American magazine, by the way, which is on the on the web, and if your listeners want to, they can get onto it. One word: Counterpunch. dot org, and it has updated daily. And they carried the story, a brilliant story, by a man called Stephen Solditz, an American academic, about this Solomon, the new vice president whom the press here swallowed the American line and said, oh, he's a very efficient military man, blah, blah, blah. Well, they would, wouldn't they? But, I mean, the truth is, when you read this article in Counterpunch, he is an expert in torture. Now, that is a special Australian significance, and I'm surprised because it's been on the web for about 48 hours that none of the journalists here have picked it up because it was Suleiman who supervised, as he does, he's vice president of Egypt, but he's also an expert torturer. He supervised the torture and interrogation, and they're the same thing, aren't they, of um, uh, Mamdu Habib in Sydney. Now, you remember Mamdu Habib like uh, the bloke in Adelaide, Hicks. Well, Mamdu Habib and Hicks were both taken to Guantanamo, but they were also sent to Egypt earlier and tortured. Now, he says that Solomon supervised Mamdu Habib's torture. By the way, Mamdu Habib eventually was broken by electrification and signed a statement, as is the custom with people who are tortured, and one of the things that was done was another prisoner was brought in and tortured in front of him and then killed. A prisoner who was a Turkmenistan, but he'd been picked up by the government of Turkmenistan and given to the Americans. They flew this poor man to Cairo where he was tortured to death and in front of Habib. Now, about six months ago, Julie Gillard's government uh, met with uh, the Attorney General, met with uh, Habib, and they agreed to pay him a sum of money, uh, which Howard had refused to do. They said it was because new evidence has come forward and a new witness. Well, that's probably true. But the Australian government must know more about this than we've been told. These articles that are appearing, that article with uh, Stephen Solditz is appearing all over the place on the web at the moment. Uh, Solomon's role as torturer-in-chief must be known to the Australian government too. So that's the sort of men around Mubarak. And they will stick to the end before they flee to Saudi Arabia or some other benighted spot with their wealth. Because the good thing about these events, Jan, as you know, is that they are shaking the whole Middle East, all these despots, silly ones like Gaddafi, who's got plenty of money, and cruel, corrupt, wealthy, obscenely wealthy ones like the Saudis and some of the Gulf states, and nasty little ones like the King of uh, Jordan, uh, whose father was on the American payroll, we now learn, from the CIA after his death. And he probably is too, with his American wife, by the way. So they're all shaking in their boots. And uh, this might be a wonderful moment for the people of Gaza, because I can't believe that whatever regime comes to power in Egypt, if Mubarak falls, will buy a blockade of Gaza. The people won't let them. Public opinion in Egypt is now on the streets. And this is where the battle will be fought out. Now, if Gaza can be helped, that will put 
tremendous pressure on Israel because, as your listeners would know, there's been a crisis in in Lebanon in the last week or two. The already powerful group of known as Hezbollah have now got a man as Prime Minister who is one of their friends. And Hezbollah, who held the Israeli army to a draw last time, really, are probably more powerful than they were. And so Israel will begin to feel boxed in. And if it has to spend a great deal of money on defending its southern borders against Egypt again, it will engender a real economic crisis in Israel. Which is interesting because I'm told that from various people I know that there's been a flood of bright young Israelis looking for well-paid jobs out of Israel to Europe and America. Uh, And that's another crisis for Israel to cope with. Just looking at Egypt and the mass media here, we're being given a bit of fear-mongering, I believe, when the, the Muslim Brotherhood, they're just waiting there to take over. Yes, there was a piece in um, Al Jazeera yesterday saying that this is the Israeli tactic, by the way, to say to the Western government secretly, oh, you'll finish up, it'll be like Iran. And in some ways, if you remember back, you're only a slip of a girl, so you probably don't, but I'm an old guy and I can remember the fall of the Shah. And there you saw the same vast crowds, the same terrible regime, and uh, eventually it fell. Mubarak is very much like the Shah in that respect. But there, yes, they're using the fear tactic. They say, oh, the Muslim Brotherhood will take power. But in fact, Egypt is a much more secular society, um, and it's Sunni, it's not Shia. And uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is used as a fear weapon, has avoided... I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood has never believed it could gain power and influence by violence or terrorism. Now they've broken down their idea that they might not cooperate with anybody in Parliament. They've now come up with the idea that they'll join a coalition government. And certainly the Muslim Brotherhood, but others too, would take a hard line against Israel. There's no doubt about that. The Israelis are cunning and they know exactly how dangerous all this would be to them. And of course it also comes at a moment when it shows the increasing impotence of the United States in the region. If you think of it, not only is um, Hezbollah being able to come to power in Lebanon, but in the last 18 months, Israel's policies in Gaza have totally alienated Turkey. Now, Turkey used to be one of the strongest American allies in the region. But Turkish public opinion is now outraged at what happened with the ships and the killing of Turkish citizens out of no reason at all by the Israelis. But Israel has lost Turkey, if I can use that phrase. And indeed, I read recently that in Turkey, a public opinion poll recently showed that the United States is regarded with enormous disfavour. Almost 100% of Turks regarded Israel with disfavour, but the United States came well up on the list. The Israelis are worried that the American government's stupidity, and it's been a long-standing context in the Middle East, is losing them strategic advantages like Mubarak and the old Turkish government which is gone. These are pretty dark days for the for Netanyahu and his fanatics because they are extreme right wing racists and um, you've only got to realise the way in which the Palestinians are treated in an apartheid society uh, by the Israelis but um, the times are changing in the Middle East. The Israelis know that democratic governments, popularly elected governments in the Middle East won't be very friendly to them. The old government of Tunisia was 
was not particularly anti-Israel, but the new one is almost certainly going to be. It's interesting, isn't it, that the small revolution in a small country like Tunisia has reverberated around the region. And El Baraday? Al Baraday, well, yes, it's hard to say. Al Baraday might be a useful transitional leader. He's um, a former UN bureaucrat, spent most of his life out of Egypt, lives in Vienna. But yeah, I think he's an honourable man. If you're comparing him with Mubarak, it's no, it's no game. And he will be able to gather a coalition, I think, around him. Uh, it's said that he's made quite good contacts with the, the Muslim Brotherhood, which hasn't been done by the illegal political parties in Egypt in the past. And by the way, that prison break the other night, as reported on Al Jazeera, saw most of the hundreds of Brotherhood prisoners who'd been in jail for a long time released. So that gives the Brotherhood a new injection of leadership. So I would expect they will do very well in an election because they run a sort of social welfare organisation in cities like Cairo and Alexandria. They run food kitchens and free clinics and are much loved by the locals. You never hear this reported in the papers here. In many ways, well, they're not my cup of tea in many of their views, nor yours, I'm sure, but um, they will represent a completely different stratum of Egyptian society to the wealthy elite, who are fleeing, by the way, 20 flights in the last two or three days <clears throat> from Emirates uh, to fly them to Dubai, and 20 flights loaded with the richest men and women in Egypt. And all their booty with them, I'd imagine? Uh, yes, the BBC reported that well, some of them have gone to Europe and one of them turned up with 94 pieces of luggage. It was said to be full of gold and currency. They're not trusting banks. If you've got that much money, you might just think it's wise to put it in a suitcase. The very wealthy and enormously wealthy media magnate, a sort of Rupert Murdoch in Egyptian terms, and a banker and his family, they've all fled, dozens of them, uh, all billionaires in a country where most people live on a dollar a day. Well, I suppose, Brian, in the next couple of days we have to watch what the army and the police are going to do. The police were apparently pretty chastened, Jen, by the, the way the crowds fought them the other night. And the army is said today to be saying that they won't fire on the people. Now, that remains to be seen, but they say the military establishment has worried that the soldiers have been, as it were, seduced by their close contact with the public in recent days. And that might be the case. In the end, in Iran, when the Shah fled, that happened in Iran. What his government did prior to that was a terrible massacre in Tehran in which about 1,200 people were killed in one day. His police went mad, shot people in droves all over the city. They even went to the hospitals and shot the families of people waiting to find their loved ones. Now that, the next day, triggered an avalanche of people into the city and his regime was literally swept away in a tsunami of demonstrators all over the country. Not that it stopped them. One of his relatives went to the National Museum and looted a collection of paintings, including Monet and Renoir and the rest. Tehran had a big national art gallery and took them with him to the United States. And oddly enough, the Shah was granted asylum in Egypt, where he fled and then on to the United States. And finally, Panama where he died, because his present was a worry to Jimmy Carter. 
that uh, his presence was a worry to the American government in the United States, which quietly ditched him and sent him off to Panama, where he bribed the Panamanian government and died there. He had cancer, of course. He, he was in bad health when the revolution against him started. Common sense might have told you or me to get out, to take his loot and go off to a good hospital in the south of France or somewhere. But no, no, he stayed till the bitter end. And Mubarak might do that too. There's something about old men, isn't there, in power? When to Look at Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. He's reduced the country to ruins, isn't he? some pretty silly women politicians about. I've never heard such rubbish talked by Hillary Clinton, and she talks a lot of that, but this week, talking about they've supported Mubarak because he's, he's stable, if you watch, the American government is retreating every day, isn't it? Their statements are, each day are becoming less supportive of Mubarak. But a, a, an Egyptian friend said to me, look, he said, this is a moment when Obama could win the entire Arab and Islamic world to the American cause if he said to Mubarak in public, go, it's all over, you should go. That's all. That would be enough, wouldn't it? Well, and stop the money going coming there too. That's right. But why doesn't he do that? My friend asked me this question, and I knew the answer, you do. The power of the Israeli and Zionist lobbies on American policy in the Middle East is so tight that the president himself can't wriggle out from under. As Carter did, of course, suffer a disaster of enormous proportions to American strategic planning. Because whatever coming in Egypt, it's not going to be favourable to Israel, and it's not going to be very favourable to the United States, and they know that. But they are hooked, aren't they? And that's the, the late Brian McKinlay, historian and author, who was farewelled this morning. And that was an interview from February 2011 as the so-called Arab Spring spread across the Middle East. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against U.S. bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, U.S. political and military influence, and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Today I'm speaking with Beverly Bell, the founder of Other Worlds and more than a dozen other non-government organisations and she's also Associate Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. One of the areas of the world which is a focus for Beverly is Latin America and the Caribbean. 
where she has both worked and lived with the grassroots people fighting against exploitation and repression by local elites and foreign multinationals. I spoke with Beverly late last week in the mountain area of Honduras, where she has been living and working with the Lenka community. And before the interview, she explained that there would be background sounds, that she chose the quietest place she could find in the whole town, but there is actually no really quiet place, with children, trucks and people gathering to organise. I began the interview talking about the recent David and Goliath victory for the people of El Salvador to stop Oceania gold mining in their country, which would have caused environmental devastation and used up scarce water resources, and the decision by the government of El Salvador to ban metal mining. Yes, there is certainly a lot of excitement for this first ever victory of banning metal mining in El Salvador. Other countries which are fighting their own extraction struggle have taken note and are thrilled at the model that the Salvadorans have created with this victory and inspiring people to figure out how to improve their own strategies and tactics and organizing and advocacy in order to be able to replicate this phenomenal outlawing of metal mining across the whole country. It's a huge innovation. It's an extraordinary victory made possible only by popular movements. And it certainly portends a lot for other mining challenged nations. Can you talk about some of the other nations who are facing similar problems to El Salvador? Certainly in Latin America, every country is facing tremendous challenges from extraction and profit-led development. And they include everything from agribusiness to metal mining to hydroelectric dams to megatourism projects to agribusiness to free trade zones. And you can see the impacts and the responses throughout North, Central, and South America and the Caribbean. And I have had the pleasure to be involved with a couple of tremendous responses, one being the Standing Rock movement in North Dakota in the U.S., where your listeners may know there has been an unprecedented uprising by Native peoples, and for the first time ever, my Native friends tell me, with significant non-Native solidarity to stop the pipeline that would go under the Ancestral River there on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in Honduras, from where I am speaking to you. There have been numerous victories I am living and working with a Lenka indigenous organization called COPIN. Certainly your listeners will know about COPIN because it is the organization that was led by the fierce and fearless Berta Cáceres, who was assassinated a year and a half ago by one of the dam companies 
that the group was fighting. But this group, COPIN, has been an inspiration for organizations fighting extraction all throughout Central America and, in fact, the world. They have stopped 46 logging concessions. They have stopped five dams. And they have reclaimed many, many, many ancestral territories that had been stolen by either transnational corporations or wealthy Honduran families on which to conduct their private development. So this is another example of where people have organized and thus stopped some of the largest economic forces in the world. I would like to just mention that last weekend I was at a beautiful, beautiful ceremony and celebration in the village of Rio Blanco, which is one of the villages where a couple of hundred Lenca indigenous peoples stopped a hydroelectric dam. And the reason for this celebration last weekend was because this small community with a few friends without money, without resources, without political power, without arms, have just succeeded in getting the Dutch Development Bank and the Finnish Development Bank to withdraw from the dam. And this follows their having gotten United States Agency for International Development, the World Bank, and the largest dam company in the world to pull out from the dam. So just like the people in El Salvador, this is an example that there are no limits when people organize. It really is David against Goliath, and they have been and continue to be able to stop huge global financial interests. How do they do it, Beverly? What's in their psyche that pushes them on to save what they see as theirs? They have nothing to lose and everything to gain. What indigenous peoples, more than anybody, are seeing is that their lands are at the center of the bullseye for extraction. And the reason is a very simple one. It is that the global north, or wealthy countries, have used up most of their primary resources, what indigenous peoples call riches of nature or Mother Earth rights and thus they need to go looking elsewhere in order to feed that giant machine that needs to keep consuming primary resources in order to create consumer goods, in order to create more profit. And so indigenous peoples have just seen their lands, their waters, their forests, everything under, on, and over their lands taken from them and it's getting worse, and so the only response for them in order to save their ancestral knowledge, their agriculture, their cosmovision, their waters, is to organize. And so this is what they are doing, and we are seeing that it is inspiring many others who are not indigenous. For example, the Standing Rock people of North Dakota in the U.S., have received delegations from well over 100 countries and over 80 indigenous nations. So this is 
to me, showing that people are really tired of what's happening in the world, and certainly under Trump, we're seeing the opportunities for more and more and more profit-led destruction. And there is a often challenged, and very often repressed, but nevertheless very stalwart movement of people all over. Who are coming up with new models, and again, as we saw in El Salvador, creating victories. Everywhere, the repression is happening from governments connected with financial sectors and the local oligarchy. In Honduras, that is certainly the case. In Honduras, there was a coup against the last democratically elected government in 2009. That coup very strongly backed by the United States government, especially with the support of Hillary Clinton personally, and that coup yielded a puppet government to the United States, which continues to this day. Which is there in order to basically do two things. One is to keep the country open for business, to use their own slogan, which interestingly is the same slogan that is used in Haiti in both cases in English, which is not the lingua franca of either country, and also to keep the wheels of repression rolling. Repression is really interesting these days because you cannot have extraction without repression. Because having extraction means throwing people's off their lands, and that invariably brings a response. And so the only way to impose this model is to have a very strong repressive apparatus. What we are seeing, which is certainly the fact that Latin America has never been free of repression, but these days we're seeing it grow and grow and grow. And as just one indicator. The Goldman Award, which is basically the Nobel Prize for environmental defenders from all over the world, it's a prize out of California, has been giving awards for something like 35 years, and they have never had an awardee killed. And in the last 18 months, they have lost two awardees, both assassinated, and had a third laureate almost killed. So that is just one indicator, but it's very striking and sobering one. I'll just get back to Berta and her friends in a moment, but you can't also have extraction without environmental destruction. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And when the Goldman Award talks about environmental defenders, and when Global Witness a couple of weeks ago from Britain put out their new report on the fact that. One of the most dangerous professions in the world is to be an environmental defender. What that means is people who are there trying to protect their lands, protect their ancestral territories, protect their waters, because the felling of the forests and the destruction of rivers and waters and the sacking of the earth, the plunder of everything, is impacting both. Pachamama, Mother Nature, as well as especially indigenous peoples everywhere. They are not taking this sitting down because, according to indigenous people cosmovision, they are Mother Earth and she is they. There is no separation in the way that many Western industrialized societies view it. How has the group recovered from the death of Berta and also another of the leaders of the the group? 
They have recovered in an amazing way in that they continue to organize and develop new strategies and go forward. There are many initiatives underway by this group that we mentioned, COPEEN, which again is the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, to continue fighting dams, to continue protecting their lands, their rivers, continue developing agroecology, and continuing to work for indigenous rights and democracy in their country. They still, however, as you mentioned, Jan, face a horrible level of repression. Their new leader is actually Berta Cáceres' daughter, also named Berta Cáceres, but in her case, she's Berta Zúñiga Cáceres. Just a couple of weeks ago, there were two death attempts against her in one day. Last week, there were three people who were arrested for planting corn on their own lands. And this has happened several times in recent weeks. And they were told that they were usurping private lands. Well, of course, it was their ancestral land. So for planting corn, they have had to go underground. There is another man who has been in jail for almost two years for cutting a tree on his land. So everyone here who is associated with that movement and with resistance against the government is under grave threat all of the time. But as I mentioned, they are not daunted. Their motto is they fear us because we are fearless. And certainly Berta Casades was until she was assassinated and they continue to hold that motto and be strong and brave and are committed to stopping this theft of their land and the destruction of their people and of Mother Earth. You're in the mountain area of Honduras. What about the environmentalists on the coastal areas? People from Africa originally, they're fighting their own battles there, aren't they, on the coast? Yes, they certainly are, and they are organized through an organization that is called the Fraternal Organization of Black Hondurans, whose acronym is OFRANE, and they are extraordinary. This is a people that was never enslaved. I've had it explained to me numerous times, and I can never quite understand it, but they were kidnapped from Africa, came over, and somehow managed to never be enslaved. And so they hold that resilient, resistant, fierce, ferocious, revolutionary spirit to this day. They have reclaimed 12 ancestral lands in the last couple of years, and they are busy right now developing what they call their promised land, which is an extraordinary site 100% surrounded by African palm plantations that were put in by the richest man in Honduras and that that are owned by this terrible multinational corporation called Dinant, D-I-N-A-N-T, that is doing destruction all over the world through African palm plantations and also through hiring their own goon squads and they have certainly done that here in Honduras and people have been threatened and killed and one of the leaders is in jail right this minute and yet they are going forward with creating this place called Vallecito which means little valley where they are starting their own basically emancipated territory where they're recovering their culture They're recovering their language. They're starting liberatory education for children. 
They are starting their own communication system, their own agroecology. It's uh, actually very much like what the MST, the Landless People's Movement, uh, have done in Brazil. It's quite extraordinary. And again, all of this at tremendous risk of death because they are taking lands that the wealthy and that the government claim are theirs. Do you do any work in the capital city, Honduras? I personally don't, but the groups that I am allied with are in solidarity with uh, movements there. And again, they are facing the same repression. What has been going on of late is the mobilization of the Autonomous University of Honduras against the privatization of their education and against the director of the university who is very closely allied with the horrible government. In the last three weeks, one student and the father of one student who was very active in the movement were both assassinated. And just yesterday, the police and the army came in and tear gassed right in their faces about 21 students who had been on a hunger strike a non-violent hunger strike. And it all goes to show that as long as this country is under the tutelage of the United States, which uses it as a foothold to control rebellious movements all over Latin America, as it has done since the 1980s, especially using Honduras as a base of resistance against or to suppress the revolutions in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, notably, of course, basing the Contras, the U.S.-backed counter-revolutionaries here in Honduras. The U.S. is continuing that with that project, and as long as this level of military and police aid keeps flowing from the U.S. to Honduras, and as long as the U.S. continues giving a blind eye to what's happening, nothing will change. However, I'm very happy to report that in the United States Congress is a bill which now has about 60 congressmen who have sponsored it called the Berta Cáceres Human Rights Act. It's the first bill ever named after a martyr, certainly... (laughs) The first one ever named after a left revolutionary martyr, I'm quite sure, but named after this beautiful leader from Honduras, whom, as we said, was assassinated last March. And this is a bill to cut off all U.S. security aid to Honduras, which would change the entire fate of the nation. Beverly, what's been your role in Honduras working with the people over all those years? Berta Cáceres and I were very close friends. For 18 years, we traveled together, we lived together, we worked together, and uh, we did especially a lot of work generating international support for the movement in Honduras and especially her organization, because Honduras has largely been overlooked with all the attention that the international community, especially the left international community, has given Latin America or Central America over the years Honduras was only known, as Berta used to say, for two things. One was for being that aforementioned base of the U.S. counter-revolutionary movement, the Contras against the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua, and the second was for Hurricane Mitch. But there has been and continues to be, of course, a very large and rebellious movement here. So we worked over the years together, she and I, and the organization behind her and the organizations with, that I worked with to generate support for those movements. 
Then once she was killed, three weeks after she was killed, I moved here at the request of her replacement coordinator, and I have just been here in a support role, helping out however I can to recuperate a lot of the knowledge that was lost with Berta's assassination and to ensure that people all over the world are informed about what's happening here and to direct effective support and solidarity for the grassroots movements and especially now to loop back to the beginning of this discussion those movements who are fighting extraction. You are listening to Beverly Bell, founder of Other Worlds talking about life in Honduras for grassroots communities fighting and winning against extraction and its consequences for the local peoples. Another country where Beverly has lived and worked is Haiti, but first the history of Haiti. The Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, has been described as the largest and most successful slave rebellion in the Western Hemisphere. Slaves initiated the rebellion in 1791 and by 1803 they had succeeded in ending not just slavery but French control over the colony. But the people of Haiti, even to this day, have paid a heavy price for that victory but continue to fight oppression and exploitation. Haiti is the only nation ever to this day ever born from a slave revolution and it was the first black republic in the world. They attained that in 1804, at that time becoming the second independent nation in the entire hemisphere, second only to the U.S. And you are quite right, Jan, there is still an enormous resentment against Haitians for having been successful and for just like the black indigenous Garifuna people that we talked about a moment ago for having refused their slavery and resisted their enslavement. And so they have been forced to pay many, many costs that have resulted in their being one of the poorest countries in the world, continuing to be repressed, continuing to be under the thumb of the United States, and yet they too continue to be a very rebellious and well-organized people. And how has that been shown in recent decades, the rebellion? Well, they have resisted, gosh, so many things. First, bringing down their dictatorship, the 30-year U.S.-backed horrendous dictatorship of the father and son Duvalier, and that was achieved in 1986 only through grassroots organizing, despite all of the arms that the U.S. sent down to sustain the dictatorship, all the money, all the political support. The people, once again, just again, as Salvadorans have just done in their fight against gold mining and heavy metal mining in general, were able to bring down the dictatorship. And ever since then, they have fought back and refused to acquiesce to the efforts to control them and increasingly to extract their land. What's happening now is that Haiti is under a new government who was imposed. He was not elected. He's been in power for about a year. His name is Jovenel Moise, and he himself is one of the largest free trade magnets in the country. He stole from government lands that were being used in usufruct 
by peasant organizations and peasant cooperatives. He stole that land and created his own enormous banana plantation for export. So bananas are now leaving that hungry country and going to Germany, and Moise is making a profit off of it. And he has said that everything under and on the land and on the ocean is for sale, and the Haitian people have refused to accept this, and they are organizing, and they are fighting back. They have not had success yet. And one of the leaders of this movement was murdered and a second was put in jail for 16 months without any charge, put into the National Penitentiary. Several others have been um, forced to flee the country and go into hiding, but they continue to resist. So they are suffering in many, many ways, especially after that horrible earthquake of 2010, and they are now facing more and more extraction of so many sorts but they are organizing and fighting back and are determined not to lose more land and more natural resources and more agricultural livelihood to those who wish to, quote, develop their country for their own means. Following that earthquake in 2010, the, the subsequent cholera epidemic was blamed on UN soldiers from Nepal. The UN has finally admitted that it was their fault. Have they paid any compensation to the people of Haiti? No, they have not. What they have said is that they are immune from having to pay compensation. And this is a classic case. It's part of this occupation that uh, has been in Haiti since, I believe, 2004. And it's called a peacekeeping force, but it is not a peacekeeping force at all. The UN soldiers in Haiti have committed rape against young women and young men. They have killed people. They have brutalized people. And they are trying to keep the country in submission. And yes, the one thing that Haiti had not yet suffered was cholera. The country had never had a cholera epidemic. And through the UN soldiers dumping their untreated sewage right into a very popular river where people drink and their animals drink and they wash their clothes and such. Haitians have now lost, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people to cholera and Ban Ki-moon said that the UN has immunity. So they finally admitted that they were responsible after lying about that for years, but they have now said we're not going to do anything except to set up a water program, which they said will take 20 years, 20 years to put in a simple water program. This is the same government, the U.S. government, that, or U.S. and U.N. together that have been, well, able to do certainly advance on, on war, uh, infrastructure, lickety-split, but they have said it will take them 20 years to give Haitians basic, basic safe water to rupture the fecal-to-mouth connection, which is what propagates cholera, and that in and of itself is, is another crime. Can you talk about the role of the Clintons in Haiti, both husband and wife? Bill Clinton was and is the special envoy from the United Nations to Haiti. Hillary Clinton, during the earthquake and in the years following when the whole reconstruction model was developed, was the Secretary of State under Obama. So Bill Clinton 
was the primary person for the UN, for Haiti. Hillary Clinton was the primary person for the U.S. in Haiti. Between the two of them, I mean, literally in their pillow talk at night before falling asleep, they built the whole future of the nation. And between the two of them, both the U.S. and the U.N. pushed sweatshop development as the reconstruction program. And the two of them helped to shape a disaster capitalism that has been virtually unsurpassed in a long history of disasterism. And the two of them just made out like bandits. No one knows how many millions of dollars they gained off of these contracts, how much political clout they gained. Hillary herself may have, we don't know, but she may have been able to get as far as she did in the last presidential election in her candidacy by mainly by people um, paying back favors from the Haitian earthquake. That earthquake gave the possibility for billions and billions and billions of dollars of profits to mainly foreign business. Certainly it did not go to help the Haitian people who are much worse off than they were before. And those two Clintons, those individuals, the two Clinton individuals are responsible for just a tremendous amount of the failure to recover on the part of the people, the failure for them to get relief, for them to get aid, for them to recover their lives, and on the other hand, for endless amounts of wealth flowing to the Clintons and their, two, and their friends. How do the NGOs manage to work in a situation like this in Haiti with all that destruction that's never been fixed up, there can't be a lot of jobs, housing, health care, education for the children. What's happening in those areas and what is the fight that the people are fighting? Well, the fight that the people are fighting actually began immediately after the earthquake. I got my first note from a left colleague in Haiti, one of the leaders of the grassroots movement, laying out an alternative plan for reconstruction three days after the earthquake. There was barely internet or cell phones, and yet he was able to send out an agenda from the grassroots movement of what they wanted for their reconstruction. I lived in Haiti for two years after that earthquake, and I worked for five years intensely with popular movements there after the earthquake. And what I saw was that this was not about rebuilding infrastructure. This was not about rebuilding buildings. This was actually a fight for power, and it was about and continues to be about who would lead the redevelopment of the nation. And as is not a surprise to anyone, the Haitian people, despite their best efforts to build a new country that did not in any ways resemble the country that had been largely toppled on January 12, 2010, have not been given anything that they need in order to participate in the future model of the country. As I mentioned, it is now evolving along the lines of extraction and of sweatshop development. But there has been a whole agenda of Haitian people to create a redistribution of power and of resources after that earthquake so that there could be a whole different future. But to date, it has been squashed by the likes of Bill and Hillary Clinton, the likes of the UN, the likes of many, many, many disaster capitalists who swooped into Haiti uh, as one person called it, this is the Super Bowl of disasters. 
the Super Bowl being the greatest football match in the United States. And it was that. It was that. And it has continued to be the Super Bowl of disasters for the people as they continue to grow poorer and more desperate, but as I said, have still not given up the fight. How are women and children faring? Not well. There are many, many, many NGOs in Haiti, as you mentioned. Most of them are part of the whole machine of NGOs that go in, that get state fun, or funds that should be going to the state, that help to break down the power of the state, and then international institutions like the UN say, well, we can't fund the state, look how inept they are, therefore we, let's keep funding these NGOs, and they are propagating a whole model that actually goes hand in hand with this development. So some of them, of course, are doing tremendous work and are providing great relief, but the way that the big NGOs work will never shift that balance of power. So where I'm putting my money and my heart and my soul and my feet and my head is with grassroots movements who do not have that kind of support structure of those big NGOs but are trying to run their smaller operations that offer a different type of aid and a different type of power relations between the state, the private sector, the international community, and the population. For example, there are some really tremendous community-run organizations that are helping to develop the local economy through cooperatives, that are training women in leadership, that are finding local monies in order to set up um, schools and community health programs for people that are run by the local populations, that are working for um, agroecology, that is ecological agriculture, which is based on organic methods and um, sound environmental practices, who are working for what's called food sovereignty, which is a nation that can feed itself so that it is not dependent on handouts, that is working to support small peasant farmers in their agricultural production, that is working to develop a more informed population through community radio. There are many beautiful initiatives that are being led by Haitian communities and Haitian activists. So in one sense, the future is the people and they are determined to to grab onto that future. That's exactly right, Jen, and that's what they have been trying to do in Haiti the 1750s when they began organizing that slave revolution, which gave them their freedom from slavery but never really emancipated them, has never given them the land that they need in order to survive, has never given them democracy, has never given them equal opportunity. It's really the same story that we've been talking about all during this interview throughout Latin America, which is a people who have been denied the most basic rights, denied democracy, often in collaboration with the U.S. government, denied the ability to live as they should, and who realize that as the great former slave leader, Frederick Douglass, in the United States said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks very much, Beverly. Jan, thank you. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. And that's Beverly Bell, the founder of Other Worlds, talking about her work and life with the grassroots people in both Honduras and Haiti. 
like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay, you, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. And you are listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and you can be listening on digital 3CR, you could be listening on the old way, 3cr.org, no, sorry, that's wrong, 8.55am, the new way is streaming on 3cr.org.au and that happens for a week or you could arrange to have this program and many others on 3CR podcast to your computer. All that information is on 3cr.org.au, the time now is 12 minutes past four and 12 minutes past five. And in a moment, the second interview from the late Brian McKinlay. Do you need mental health support from people who have been there? Wellways Helpline is a free and confidential service providing mental health information, support and referral advice. All our Helpline volunteers are peers, people who have lived experience of mental health issues. If you are experiencing concerns with your mental health and well-being or supporting someone who is, call Helpline on 1300 111 500, Monday to Friday, 9am till 9pm. If you don't know which way to turn or who to talk to, call us on 1300 500. Wellways Australia is a leading national mental health disability support and community care organisation and a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. Next on Tuesday Home Time, historian and author Brian McKinlay. Today I'm going to talk about French imperialism because it seems that in all the discussion that followed the shootings, the Charlie Hebdo shootings in Paris, 
and we all deplore those, very little has uh, been said about the quite appalling history of the French as imperialists in the Middle East over the last two centuries. And it's that long. Some of the events will be familiar to you, but what I thought today to look at this long history of how the French have become involved in and much hated throughout the Islamic and the Middle Eastern world. In the early 19th century, in 1820 to be accurate, the French government of the day sought to conquer Algeria. Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Libya, Egypt, all of those countries of North Africa, plus the Middle East, Syria, Iraq and so on, were all part of the old Ottoman Empire, which in the 15th century had conquered the old decaying empire of Byzantium, centred in Constantinople, and a Christian empire, which gradually had succumbed to Islam's conquest of the area. And when the Turks emerged and captured what we now call Turkey because there were a Middle East and Middle Asian people who had been converted to Islam but they were a nomadic people. The Turks conquered Turkey and then proceeded to establish an empire which at its height extended from Budapest to Constantinople around through the cities of the and countries of the Middle East and all the way along to Morocco. It was an enormous empire and took in more than half the Mediterranean world including Greece of course which the Turks conquered for centuries. In the 19th century this Turkish empire began to collapse. It was chaotic and badly administered and the Turks were being overwhelmed by the growing power of European nations, Britain and France in particular, who had become or were becoming great industrial powers and the Turks weren't that. In the 1820s, a series of events occurred, including a rebellion by the Greeks, which is still celebrated every year by the Greeks on March the 25th. Uh, and the Greek rebellion was aided by Britain and France and was a great blow to the Turks when Greece became independent again. And all around the Middle East, the Turks found their empire under challenge from the two Western powers, two imperialist powers that at the same time were extending all around the world. We remember the time of the British Empire in the Indian subcontinent, the colonisation of Canada and Australia by the British. And the French, of course, did the same in places like Vietnam, which in those days was referred to as Indochina, covering those three countries we now speak about in that area. And the French proceeded in the 1820s to move into and conquer some of the old Turkish Empire. Now, the first place they did this was Algeria, and they had a motive. Algeria was uh, an important trading nation with France. It also had important seaports, and, of course, it had land, which hopefully, in the ideas of the French, they could dispatch poor peasant families from France to colonise, and they did, Algeria. Now, the Algerians resisted the French invasion for almost a generation, and there were massive casualties. The French brought a modern army by the standards of the time. They occupied the capital, Algiers, and other big cities, which eventually became a major French naval base, and French then occupied much of Algeria. Indeed, to do so, they set up a very infamous organisation called the French Foreign Legion, 
Now, this was a, an army separate to the French army, composed entirely of expatriates and mercenaries. And they were used in the most ferocious way against the people of Algeria, till in the end, resistance failed in the middle of the 19th century. And then the French went on to conquer Morocco and Tunisia. They didn't take Libya, which the Italians took from the old Turkish Empire. The British, of course, and the French took Egypt and shared it between them and built the Suez Canal, which was a major event linking the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and, of course, to Asia. So all of those events occurred during the 19th century. <clears throat> Likewise, the French always had interests in Lebanon, where they invaded and although it was part of the old Turkish Empire, and took Beirut and several other cities and then used the Christian minority among the Arab population as a sort of bulwark for French rule. The French always favoured the Christian groups. They were of a sect called the Maronites, but they were actually Catholics in the end, and they suited the French. The French also extended railways and commercial enterprises into Syria, which they had until modern times. So all of these events occurred up to and before the First World War. During the First World War, lots of French colonial troops, as they were called, but they were Algerians or Moroccans, died on the battlefields of Europe. And in fact, the major mosque in Paris was built after World War I as a monument to those North Africans, mostly, who died on the great battlefields of the, of the Western Front. Algeria, Morocco and Tunisia, indeed, paid a bitter price for French colonialism and French settlers streamed into Algeria, not Morocco or Tunisia to the same degree, but in Algeria there was plenty of land and the Arab settlers were driven off the land, again a parallel really to Palestine and the Zionist state. There grew up quite a population. Algiers had hundreds of thousands of French citizens. And indeed, Algiers looks like a French Mediterranean city. Very handsome city, built around a great harbour, full of French colonial architecture, hotels, churches. One of the great cities of the Mediterranean, actually. I was there many years ago, but I was surprised at that feature, as indeed uh, the feature of Tunis, which is also very much, the capital of Tunisia, is very much French-looking in all the older sections of the city. After the Second World War, or during the Second World War, I should say, Algeria, Morocco and Tunisia were occupied, invaded and occupied in 1942 by the Allies, by the Americans, the Free French and the British. They'd been under the control of the fascist government of France, the Vichy government, which the Nazis had cleverly set up. And they also ran North Africa. If you've seen Casablanca, and everyone in the world has seen it, I think, the film, Casablanca is set during this fascist, Vichy period. Well, that ended in 1942, late in the year, when American, British and French troops, Free French as they were called, landed in Morocco and Algeria and occupied the countries. And they became very important to the Allied war effort in the Mediterranean and eventually to the invasion by the Allies of the south of France about a month after the famous D-Day landings. Algeria and then later Tunisia and of course Morocco. And Algeria was the first to be liberated. Uh, Tunisia was the last. But by the end of 1942 they were all under French control again. 
the Allies gave them back to France to administer. In the rest of the war, they were central to the Allied Mediterranean strategy. On the very day, the 8th of May 1945, amid the rejoicings at the end of the war and the final defeat of Nazi Germany, the French authorities in Algiers fired on a crowd of demonstrators, among the people celebrating, by the way, who had appeared with banners calling for a free Algeria. Now, all the talk about freedom and the defeat of fascism was taken for granted in Algeria by the Algerian Arab population, uh, and the French weren't having any of that. And dozens of people were shot down in Algiers on Liberation Day, on Victory Day, as it was called. That marked the real beginning of the struggle for Algerian independence. Just as all over the Middle East, the same struggles were beginning to appear, in many cases, like in Syria, Lebanon, with the so-called Ba'ath Party, which means Renaissance, and was a kind of socialist movement, a secular movement, and that happened too in Algeria. Now, from 1945 to 1963, period of 18 years, the struggle for independence in Algeria went on. It ran parallel, by the way, with the struggle for independence in Indochina, where on the day the war ended in August in Indochina, there was an uprising by Vietnamese, Laotian and Cambodian Democrats and and others to form their own government. Well, in both cases, the French dispatched troops to Vietnam and the Vietnam War started in exactly the same way as the liberation struggles led to the war in Algeria. The French colonists of the most awful kind. But in Algeria, the battle, like that in Vietnam, once started, was going to be lost by the French. It took them a long while to realise this. It raged on in a mild way, in a minor way, through the 40s and into the 50s. But in 1954, the Viet Cong won their famous victory at the Bien Phu in Vietnam, which really marked the end of French rule. That had a galvanising effect in Algeria, where people could see what was happening to the French in Vietnam and quite rightly thought this could be achieved in Algeria. And so the Algerian struggle became stronger and at the same time the Algerians began to get material aid and weapons and so on from Egypt where Nasser had come to power. Now Nasser was one of the great figures of the 50s and an Arab nationalist leader of remarkable strength. He openly aided uh, insurgents in Vietnam against the French. That led the British and the French and, of course, the Israelis to the idea that they might destroy NASA over the issue of the Suez Canal. Just briefly, because this is crucial to the story, the Suez Canal was nationalised in 1955 by NASA in a dramatic intervention. Uh, It had been built a hundred years earlier by the British and the French in 1869. The French and the British ran the canal, got the profits, deliberately didn't train Egyptians to learn how to run the canal so that there was no opportunity for the Egyptian government to say, well, it goes through our territory on our soil, let's um, do something about it. In 55, NASA, NASA asked 
asked the British and the French and the Americans for loans to build a great dam at Aswan on the Nile. In a very stupid way, the banks in those countries refused to give NASA the aid he wanted, and he turned to the Russians, who not only offered him aid, but offered technical help to build the dams, and Russian technicians and others soon came to Egypt to do that. But of course, they still had to pay the Russians. And now the question of the Suez Canal, and it's very profitable business, was raised in Egypt, and NASA nationalised the canal. Now, that produced the greatest crisis since World War II in the Middle East called the Suez Crisis. We know now that there was a conspiracy between Britain, France and Israel. The Israelis' role in the conspiracy was quite clear. And there's some excellent books on the subject, by the way. The Israelis invaded Egypt, invaded the Sinai. And it, immediately they did that. The British and the French said, oh, golly, the war with Israel and Egypt is going to close the Suez Canal. Let's take the Suez Canal and make sure that it's open because it's vital to world trade, especially trade between Europe and Asia. Now, this was all concocted. The Israelis had had secret meetings, and all this was disclosed later, with the British and the French, and the French particularly supported it. Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, was engaging a bit of imperialistic nostalgia, of course. Uh, the British still had those what they call East of Suez interests in Asia. Uh, but the French had a different reason. They wanted to destroy Nasser because he was openly encouraging and supporting the insurgents in Algeria. So the French were going to kill two birds with the one stone. They were going to get rid of Nasser but that would end the conflict in Algeria. The British and the French, very quickly, and it had been well planned. Among other things, they sent Menzies as their aid to go to talk to Nasser to ask him to give up the idea of nationalising the canal, and of course he got nowhere. And then the British and the French invaded. This was very clear that they were going to do so. You can't marshal a large fleet in the Mediterranean without being observed. It eventually took place. The British bombed Suez and the other towns with many casualties among the civilian population, the French and the British between them, while the Israelis swept down to the canal to complete the conspiracy. The Egyptians, on the other hand, had prepared for this and they sank ships in the canal, thereby closing it which rather made a joke of the British and the French and the Israelis saying they were going to keep the canal open because it was now very definitely closed and was closed for several years to world trade. The British and the French really intended then to go on to Cairo and remove Nasser's government. Well, at this moment, two dramatic things happened. Firstly, Eisenhower, who was the least belligerent of American post-war presidents, he said he wasn't going to preside over any wars. Eisenhower had been a military leader, but he actually hated wars. He learned a lot. had criticised France, Britain and Israel, especially the Israelis, who detested him over the whole Suez incident, or war as it was. But Eisenhower didn't stop at that. Eisenhower told the British and the French that the American banks would sell French and British currency, the pound and the franc, on the world market. Now, if you sell great swads of currency, the price comes down dramatically overnight. And that happened to the pound. There was what they called a run on the pound. 
people all over Europe sold pounds, British pounds and French francs, at their local banks for other currencies. And the value of the currency dropped. Now, nobody expected this. Within a few days, the British economy was in dire straits. And yet the British had landed troops along the canal and were fighting the Egyptians. And then the second intervention occurred. The Russians announced that Russia would intervene on the side of Nasser and Egypt. This won the Russians huge kudos, by the way, for a generation in the Arab world, unless the British and the French stopped. Khrushchev went as far as to suggest that the Russians might use missiles to aid the Egyptian forces fighting the British and the French. Well, that threat was enough. The United Nations met and demanded the British uh, and the French and the Israelis stop their attack on Egypt, and the whole campaign fizzled. The British and the French were eventually forced to a humiliating retreat from Egypt, which only strengthened Nasser, of course. The British had suffered casualties, as the Egyptians had, of course, in greater numbers. So had the French, the Israelis. Uh, Egypt, uh, under Nasser, was now bitterly opposed to them and much more friendly to the Russians than Nasser had ever been. Now, in Algeria, the French defeat in the Suez campaign in 56 stirred the Algerian resistance to an even greater level. Algeria became the scene of what was a kind of civil war between the French settlers, who numbered some hundreds of thousands, the French army on their side, and the Arab population of Algeria. There's a film called The Battle of Algiers, which looks at the later stages of this business, because the insurgents now know we're not only fighting in the countryside, which is very extensive in Algeria, lots of mountainous country along the Mediterranean coast, and vast areas of desert inland, and also in Algiers, where the insurgents developed a very effective urban guerrilla warfare, blowing up French installations and all of that. Algeria was now plunged into civil war. Eventually, this led to the collapse of the French government and indeed of the French, what was known as the Fourth Republic in France. Faced with this crisis, both in France now and in Algeria, the French begged de Gaulle, who'd retired, the wartime anti-fascist French leader, a conservative, but not a man of the far right. De Gaulle was in retirement, and he was begged by the political parties to come back and take over the presidency. And, of course, he demanded a new constitution, which gave him wide powers. There was a referendum hastily arranged that was carried, and de Gaulle was president. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, this is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Now de Gaulle went to Algeria. The army in Algeria had made it clear that they wouldn't obey the French government's call for them to get out and let the people of Algeria govern themselves. And de Gaulle went there and managed to give the white settlers, the French settlers, the idea that he was on their side. But he wasn't. When he got back to France, he set about a series of conferences and treaties, a long drawn out process with the Algerian leaders who had formerly, many of them, been in jail. And they met de Gaulle and an arrangement was finally reached in 1962 
to withdraw the French army totally, and all the French citizens who lived in Algeria, and some had been there for generations, should go back to France. This, in fact, led to an army revolt by the right-wing groups in the French army who planned to overthrow de Gaulle in Paris and elsewhere was saved by a series of general strikes called by the French left. Eventually, the treaty with the Algerians was carried out and the last of the French troops and most of the French settlers left by 1963. And the National Liberation Front the body that was now in charge of the insurgency, they became the government of Algeria. Sadly, in the years that followed, they had a very poor record of administration and virtually became a one-party state. Algeria's great export and major source of income is oil and gas, like Libya and several other countries in the region. They have great gas and oil fields in the Sahara Desert. And pipelines today link Algeria to Europe, to France and Italy and Spain for gas and, uh, and oil. And the Algerian economy is largely founded on that. The terrible business in Algeria following the Suez Crisis was a, um, a, a warning to people right across the Arab world at how violent the French could be. Interestingly, while these events were taking place in Algeria, the French were finally driven out of Vietnam, but by then the Vietnamese liberation movement had become entirely controlled by the Viet Cong, so the French then left behind for the Americans, who now moved into Vietnam, the ingredients of what became the Vietnam War you can see how disastrous French colonialism was. For instance, in the 1920s, the, the Treaty of Versailles gave the French control over Lebanon and Syria that had been part of the old Turkish Empire. The French faced in 1920 and 1926 a huge uprising in uh, Syria, which went on for months by Syrian nationalists who wanted their independence, and they were crushed by the French. But after World War II, when the French really lost control of those two Middle Eastern countries, when France fell to the Nazis, de Gaulle set up what was called the Free French Government in London. But Algeria and Morocco were really run during World War II by the British, and indeed Australian troops took part in the taking over of those countries in, to prevent a Nazi occupation. At the end of the war, the French rule in Lebanon and Syria was very weak, and that led the French, or they were forced, to give Syria and Lebanon self-government in the 1940s, which, of course, also helped trigger the view in Algeria that they should get the same treatment. The French continued, and still do, to interfere in the complex religious-political events of Lebanon. The French, right down through the 1990s and into this century, have continued to give aid to right-wing Christian groups in Lebanon because many of them, during the French colonial period, the older generation, were educated in French schools and universities. French is widely spoken by Lebanese even to this day. And some of the Lebanon's endless problems can be attributed to the after-effects of French colonial rule. The French have this unenviable history 
In the case of Algeria and Morocco, their involvement in terms of French settlers was quite minor, and both countries are quite different, but Tunisia had the advantage of a Mediterranean climate and a long coastline, it's a small country, but a long coastline of beach resorts and small towns, which in modern times the Tunisians have harnessed to uh, their tourist industry. Algeria today is a major tourist country, and the French, in fact, go there in great numbers because the Algerians, many of them, speak French. The same's been true in another degree of Morocco. The French used the Moroccan monarchy in the 19th and 20th century, kept the king on the throne, as the British did in parts of India, but rather ruled through him. But the various Moroccan kings were able sometimes to play the French at their own game. And Morocco never became a colony in the way that Algeria did. And in the 1950s, Morocco's independence movement took up the struggle and the king of the time actually became a central figure. And because the French didn't have a large number of settlers in Morocco, they uh, finally went pretty peacefully. Now, of course, all these events <coughs> meant that a great number of citizens of North Africa made their way to France. Some of them married into French families, the French servicemen, many of whom lived and worked for years in the colonies, often married local women. And they and their families later went back to France when the French left. Lots of Algerians and Moroccans and others went to French schools and universities, the wealthier classes, and they, of course, became pretty Francophile and lived in Paris, studied, and French spoke French. And then, on the other hand, a lot of um, poorer Algerians made their way, if they could, to France for work. And so today, you have in France a situation where there are about 5 million French citizens who are of North African origin and are mostly Muslims. They are treated pretty poorly. They occupy the lowest levels of the workforce. There's high levels of unemployment. I think unemployment in France at the moment is about 12%, but it's double that among young Algerian French citizens, young people of Algerian or Moroccan descent. If you travel to Paris, you know it's famous for its wonderful Moroccan restaurants and uh, the effect on the French cuisine of Moroccan food, which is seen as the most interesting cuisine in North Africa, is quite profound. And the Moroccans stream across every day, and I dare say some young men are doing it at this very moment, across the straits between Morocco and Spain, and many of them, of course, get low-paid jobs in Spain, picking vegetables or sweeping streets. But many of them make their way to Paris and to France, uh, which is for North Africans, Libyans these days among the refugees, because thanks to the French and British invasion of Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. Libya has collapsed now into a failed state with two rival governments and a third in Tobruk and Islamist groups everywhere fighting each other and people streaming out of Libya to Sicily and to uh, uh, Malta. Now these large North African communities in France are very resentful of their treatment, very hostile to French policies in the past. They know all about what I've been talking about 
and it's a great problem that France now has to cope with. Just a, a few asides from what you've been talking about, Brian. There are, in fact, still French troops active in Africa. That's true, Jan. The French have been, in, they claim, asked by several Central African and Northern Sub-Saharan African countries like Mali and um, other, other countries in the region to go to the government's aid when they've been threatened with overthrow by Islamist groups. That's the French excuse. But the French, more than any other power, I don't think the British or even the Americans have moved military forces into these African countries. Now, it has to be said that some of them are basket cases under corrupt governments with internal fighting that's destroyed much of the infrastructure. And the French have used that as their excuse to move into these countries. The next issue is that France continues in the Security Council to prevent Western Sahara's vote for self-determination from Morocco. Yes, Western Sahara is a territory of Morocco. It's south of Morocco, if you look at it on an atlas. Western Sahara has had a very, for many years, a very vigorous independence movement, and the people of the region want their independence. The King of Morocco claims it's Moroccan. He has used his defence links with the French to have the French in the Security Council and elsewhere vote against independence or the notion of independence for that region against the Moroccans. Again, that's part of the link between the Moroccan ruling class and the French. King of Morocco and those at the top. And Morocco is a kind of democracy with a parliament and elections. It's not the worst place in Africa. But the, the elites know that if they ever ran into real trouble locally, the French would be there to put down any trouble on their behalf. You also haven't spoken about the French in the Pacific, and we're well aware of the yes. nuclear testings, but we have to go back before the nuclear testings in the Pacific to the nuclear tests by France in Algeria. That's right. Before Algerian independence, the French conducted nuclear tests in the desert on the way to becoming a nuclear power. Later, when Algeria became independent, they were prevented from doing that, of course, by the Algerians, and then they moved to Tahiti, to that island near Tahiti, where they conducted the nuclear test for some years in the South Pacific. So in both cases, France used its colonial territories, now Tahiti and Algeria, as the basis for conducting nuclear tests. That has to be said that the British did the same with one of their old colonial territories, Australia, under the Menzies government in the 50s, when they conducted those terrible nuclear tests in Central Australia. And by the way, we don't know this, all the stories and the real truth, but there's not much doubt that in the 1960s, a sympathetic French government gave the Israelis key parts of nuclear technology that led on to the Israeli nuclear program and eventually the Israeli bomb. Nobody denies that. And it seems that sympathetic people in the French government went out of their way to help the Israelis get the bomb. So France's history in nuclear power is pretty despicable, really. Let's finish with Monsieur Le Pen. Ah, yes, finally, Monsieur Le Pen. Le Pen, we all know about his daughter, I think, Marie Le Pen, who has been very successful in recent French elections, 
and is now running ahead of the socialist government in France. Now, it has to be said that Hollande and the socialist government has been a disaster. They have followed a, an austerity program laid down by the banks. The last poll I saw had the French government at 10%. The socialists have lost votes in all directions, but particularly to the left alliance, which is a modern version of the old French Communist Party. It's interesting in Europe, by the way, uh, this is happening in Spain with Podemos, a new left-wing group that's now running first in the polls, and we've seen this remarkable uh, left-wing victory in Greece. All over Europe, the old left-wing parties, if they were ever that much, uh, like the French socialists and the British Labour, Party, of course, are losing support, and this is especially true in Spain and Greece, and I think it will be in France, two new left-wing parties that are saying, you know, end austerity and all of these neoliberal economic measures. But Le Pen, the founder of the National Front, which his daughter now runs in France and runs very effectively, her father in his youth, however, was part of the French intelligence service of the military and had worked both in Indochina and in Algeria and critics of his alleged that he was in a unit of the French intelligence in Algeria that specialised in torture. Now there's no doubt about that. Camus, a French writer of the 1950s, a very celebrated writer, was involved in a series of legal and political battles and his writings were challenged because he wrote about the terrible tortures and other things that the French were doing in Algeria. Now, at the very heart of that was Jean-Marie Le Pen, then a young man, who went back to France after the end of French rule in Algeria and became involved and set up a political party called the National Front. Now, the National Front is a body with fascist roots because during World War II, as many of your listeners will know, France, under the Nazis, was also ruled half of France. Hitler was very clever. Part of France, the south of France, was ruled by a fascist regime that the Nazis set up under two men, Laval and Pétain, prominent politicians of the time, uh, but very right-wing. And they then ruled half of France under Nazi auspices. And this fascist regime lasted in France from 1940 to the liberation in 1944, when, of course, the French resistance and the Allied forces drove the Nazis out, and many of the Vichy people were arrested and jailed, well, thousands of them. Pétain, the president, went to jail for life, and Laval, the prime minister, was executed by firing squad at de Gaulle's orders. So... French fascism effectively was destroyed in 1944, but it didn't really. Uh, there was always uh, fundamentalist right-wing groups, some of them linked to sections of the Catholic Church in France, well after World War II. And it's this, that Le Pen in the 60s, with a very sort of racist, anti-Arab, anti-Algerian message, Le Pen formed the National Front, and that went from strength to strength. Indeed, so well that some years ago, in the first round of the French elections for the president, he got ahead of the socialists, who had picked a very bad candidate. They have a second round, and only the two top candidates run, and Le Pen ran against 
the Conservative candidate and president of the time, Chirac. And that so galvanised people in France that the left-wing parties actually urged people to vote for the Conservatives because it was unthinkable that people vote against the Conservatives by voting for Le Pen's quasi-fascist party, and indeed that happened, and Chirac got over 80% of the vote. But uh, the National Front's gone from strength to strength as the clashes with the Arab world have grown, and uh, Marie Le Pen, his daughter, now runs the party, and she's she seems more moderate than a father, but she's not. The National Front in France is probably the most powerful quasi-fascist party in all of Europe. And there's no doubt at the next presidential elections that she's going to see herself as a real potential candidate for the presidency of France. And that was the second of contributions by the late Brian McKinlay to Tuesday Home Time first was looking at Egypt during the so-called Arab Spring in early 2011 and that second was looking at French imperialism. Brian first broadcast on Tuesday Home Time back in 2004 and over the years it became a monthly segment on Tuesday Home Time and over the last year or so a bi-monthly well, that's every fortnight, contribution to Tuesday Home Time. He'll be sorely missed. He was farewelled this morning, and, um, yeah, it's a sad day, but we won't be hearing more of Brian McKinlay. He's had such a, a knowledge of the world of history and politics. So let's have some community announcements and just about ending the program for today. CR Radio for Change. What other radio station can you think of that has programs handmade by people with a range of disabilities? And that's why the 3CR community is so worth your support. To donate, call 03 9419 What I like about doing this show in particular is being able to talk about stuff that for many people has been encased in stigma and shame. And I think the more we talk and the more we keep disability, mental illness on the agenda every day, the more people will get used to all of us. And, you know, we won't seem so scary to them. 3CR, Radio for Change. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Bring 
The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. Well, that's all for me for today. Jan Bartlett, Tuesday Home Time. I'll be back again next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. In a few moments' time, we'll be hearing from Done By Law, the Federation of Community Legal Centres, but first, let's have some Kev comedy. Bye for now.